What is going on? Welcome to Canucks Talk here on Sportsnet 650. I'm Jamie Dodd, joined as always by my co-host, Canucks insider Thomas Drantz, who also covers the team for the Athletic. Canucks Talk brought to you by Avenue Machinery and Douglas Lake Equipment, keeping you at the top of your game. Now found together online at DLEAMC.com. Coming to you live from the Kintech studio, Kintech Footwear and Orthotics, Canada's favorite orthotics provider, supported by over 2,500 five-star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit at Kintech.net, 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Uh, Drancer joining me, of course, and uh, hopefully with a a high-quality, well-functioning internet connection, Drancer. Uh, we'll see. I mean, at my, uh, I think I'll intermittently be available to do the show today. Very good. <laughs> I'll be, I'll be, I'll be here. We'll leg yes. it out, no matter what happens. Well, unlike in the Stanley Cup playoffs uh, with live radio, truly anything can happen. So we, we'll see. We'll see what happens <laughs> over the course of the next two hours. But uh, very exciting round one in the books. The Devils dusted the Rangers in Game Seven last night. Round Did they two ever. starts tonight. What a performance! And like in both for both what a, teams. What an absolute boot stomping what a great performance the by the devils and what a brutal game seven performance against your like cross river rivals for the new york Wild. rangers a team that went all in brought in cup winning vets and that was your game seven performance that was tough well, stuff so jamie after our show is done our listeners will listen to the pdo cast which i pre-recorded with dimitri so there's a large block of drance takes coming very exciting and so you might hear this again around um what 245 on these air airwaves but the the take i suggested to dimitri is that the new york rangers are in fact the most disappointing team of the stanley cup playoffs not the boston bruins who choked away a historic regular season not the defending stanley Mm -hmm. cup champions who lost in seven to a second year expansion outfit but a new york rangers team that loaded up prior to the deadline had the on paper star talent Um, you know, a dizzying level of on-paper star talent. And yet, you know, when you look at the series and think about the series and how it played out, like, I I mean, I think they won the first two games because Lindy Ruff made some of the most baffling coaching decisions that I've seen in a decade covering this league. And in game six, because a young team that has never really been on this stage before kind of got the yips Mm. and played sloppy hockey. Now, you, you credit them to some extent for capitalizing on it, But the New York Rangers, it feels like, won three games in which the Devils beat themselves more than they beat the Devils. And as the series ramped up and the stakes ramped up, the Rangers were completely out of ideas. They tried nothing new at all. It it wasn't working. And that was about as lifeless a performance as you'll see on that sort of playoff stage, particularly given that I don't think you could watch it and think that the Rangers' effort level or... Yeah. Like, I don't think they packed it in at any point. They were pushing. They just had no answers, no speed, far from enough two-way ability, and it ended up being a- an almost preposterous mismatch. When you think about early in the second period before Andres Palat won two 50-50 engagements and deked the third Ranger into Thursday of next week, um, you could just tell. Like, you knew exactly what direction that game was trending in without, you know, a, a real lucky bounce going the Rangers' favor. Uh, it was a, a truly dominant outing from a New Jersey Devils team who were throwing a fastball that the Rangers weren't even close to catching up to. 
yeah, it's the Rangers did so much of their damage on the power play in that series, and that's just not a sustainable way to win a playoff series against a really good team, right? Like hoping that you have uh, a penalty advantage or a power play advantage that significant that's going to like erase all of your five-on-five issues, which they had a ton of in that series. It's kind of remarkable when you look at how it played out last night that it was a game seven, right? Like based on just watching that last night, that should have been like a five game series, but uh, the devils move on and they will face the hurricanes now. And we'll, we'll talk about round two. We'll give you our round two picks uh, a little bit on each series. Of course, a couple of them getting going tonight, but before we completely close the book on round one of the Stanley cup playoffs, uh, you have up just very recently hot off the presses or the digital presses or whatever up at the athletic, <laughs> uh, Canucks takeaways, Canucks-centric takeaways from the first round of the Stanley Cup playoffs. And we we touched very briefly on a couple of these yesterday on the show with Greg Wyshynski, but we have a chance to dig into them a little bit more now, Drancer. Uh, where, where do you want to start on your list of Canucks takeaways? Well, let's start at the top with the fact that a high-end group, right, a, an elite core is insufficient on its own to win at this time of year, right? And and this is important. The regular season is super different. We all know it mm-hmm. from the playoffs. You, you turn on a game in February, you can tell how different it looks from the games you're watching every night at the moment in terms of pace, in terms of intensity, in terms of just about everything. But honestly, one of the biggest differences is in the regular season, you get shellacked by one of the NHL's elite teams. Well, Luckily for you, on Tuesday, you get to go to Mullet Arena and beat the Coyotes <laughs> and get your game back on track. Yep. And that doesn't exist in playoff hockey. You are constantly facing the same opponent. They have time to game plan for you. They probe your weaknesses. And if you don't like how the game turned out, there's only one thing to do, which is which is solve the problem. Change your lineup uh, because they know what's coming. And, you know, over the course of that series that I watched in Seattle – the level that Nathan McKinnon was hitting and how little it ultimately mattered blew me away. You know, and 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 truly, like, I don't know that I've ever seen an individual player dominate a playoff series the way that Nathan McKinnon did against the Kraken. Like, you look at his performances in games two, three, and six, and in the piece expressly, like, I call it, Nathan McKinnon's Mamba mentality act, right? <laughs> and that's de- that's deliberate. Like, I'm literally, he had the impact that you'd expect of a star NBA player in the playoffs, uh, the sort of guy who plays 90% of the game, right? A- and is responsible personally for 45% of his team's shot events. That's how good McKinnon was. He owned those games completely. And when you look at how the Avalanche performed in his minutes, the shot differentials... The fact that they scored nine goals at five on five across seven games with him on the ice and only permitted three. I mean, he gave them the sort of top end that should put any playoff opponent to bed. And yet in the minutes McKinnon wasn't on the ice, they were outscored by nine. They gave that back and more. They didn't get a single goal from their bottom six forward group. And, you know, in in a world where when we talk about like the Canucks making long-term moves or prioritizing anything beyond next season, the often we often hear, well, you can't do that. You've got, and then the list of Vancouver's small group of really good players, Patterson, mm-hmm. Miller, Kuzmenko, Hughes, Demko, Hironic. People sometimes include Hironic. He's played four games for the franchise. And 
the fact is, is that if you're not well constructed, right, if you're not good enough, rounded enough, if you don't have the army, it, it, it kind of doesn't matter once you get into the playoffs and the opponents that you're facing are of this caliber, are of this quality, are playing with this level of consistent intensity. Um, you can like Vancouver's top end group. I like Vancouver's top end group, but do you like them more than McKinnon, McCarr, Taves, Rantanen? Yeah. Like, you know, do you? Um, I think that's a stretch. <laughs> and it happened to the Avs. They didn't have the depth to overcome. They were too hollowed out by both their own success and some bad luck in terms of off-ice issues and injuries. And it killed them. It killed them in the first round. So for me, that was like number one. The number one takeaway, and we see it every year, but it's always worth affirming. A, an elite top-end group just isn't enough at this time of year. It's too hard to win once you get to the Stanley and Cup. And when playoffs. I kind of translate that into, okay, what does it mean for the Canucks, like for this offseason and going in to next season and the playoff push for next year? And, you know, I've kind of uh, I've been beating the run-it-back drum a little bit, right? But, like, for me, I start to look at that that class of forward where it's an assumption that the team is going to do everything they can to move them. Right. And that's Besser and that's Garland. And then maybe you get to Anthony Beauvillier where it's not quite as desperate, but there's still an appetite to do it. And like, the thing is all three of those players are useful players. Right. And yeah, the contracts mm. aren't great, but I don't, I also don't think you can move any of them with the assumption that you're going to replace them with both a cheaper and a better player. Right. <laughs> right. And like, if you are so desperate to move those players, I think there's a real risk that you end up costing yourself on the ice. And like the guy I'm thinking of specifically here, the most is Connor Garland. And, you know, we talked a lot about what he did in the final few months of the season under Rick Tockett, really being the offensive driver and a very productive offensive driver for the third line. And I think it's kind of easy to minimize that, right? And say like, okay, but whatever. He's not a top six player. He's not a star. You know what I mean? Sure, he's driving a third line, but that's the bottom six role. Is it really that important? Well, that's really useful. Like Colorado could have used someone who could drive offense from their third line in that playoff series, right? So yep. like I, I actually don't think – I don't think it's impossible. As we go through some of these other takeaways, like I can see a world – where the Canucks have a pretty deep forward group. Now, maybe not down the middle, and there's going to be some questions about how they all fit together and stuff, and I, I'm not going to say it's like an elite depth at forward or anything like that, but I can see at least a world where it's not a major weakness, where it, where it's something you're comfortable with. But I don't know if I do see that if you're moving Garland, Besser, and Beauvillier and just kind of hoping to replace all of those players, because again, I think they can all help you and you need guys. It can't just be your five best forwards that are going to do it for you, right? You need the complimentary player like Connor Garland farther down the lineup guys. You can move up and down the lineup. And that's one of the concerns for me is that, yeah, like I, I understand the desire for cap space, but what impact is that actually going to have on the ice in terms of your depth, especially up front going into next season? Well, and you bring up such an interesting point because First of all, Team Run It Back is, you know, has been having a very good couple of weeks ever since you unveiled this take. Are we That's at a couple right. months yet? Yeah, I think, well, probably no. close to that. I mean, a lot of things have unfolded to make you look pretty wise with this take, <laughs> uh, as much as I hate to admit it. Um, I wish I'd thought of it myself. There you so go. Um, as, as well as your take is aging, you know, I think there's a process that causes a team like Colorado to be hollowed out that's worth bearing in mind. 
because it sort of dates back to a, a concept that we've kind of been talking about with the Canucks for ever since the birth of our show, Jamie, to be totally honest with you, which is what hollows Colorado out, right? Well, it's all of their best players getting more expensive, mm -hmm. right? And the pressure that that puts on the team to construct depth around them and the downside that can then be realized as a result of a player injury, right? I mean, it's not as if the Colorado Avalanche were flawlessly healthy on their run to the playoffs last year, right? Sam Girard missed time. Like, they missed a top-four defenseman for, like, a long stretch. Yeah. But they had, they had a luxuriously built, deep roster that was capable of withstanding that. But you lose Burakovsky in free agency. You lose... Kadri. Um, Nazem Kadri in free agency, right? And then you have injuries to Landis Gog and um, a personal issue for Valerie Nichushkin, injuries to Darren Helm. You know, you sort of go down the list and, oh, Nico Sturm also leaves in free agency. You know, that seems small, just like the injury to Darren Helm, until you've got Dennis Mulgan and, and Ben Myers in your top nine in a do-or-die game seven, right? I, I, there's a process that occurs naturally across the league and this is what makes what Tampa Bay accomplished so stupendous, mm -hmm. which is as teams um, get good, as they improve, all of their pieces get more expensive and they're forced to make these absolutely gut-wrenching, difficult decisions in terms of who to keep, how to move money, the price you have to pay to move money sometimes, right? The, the, like, there's a reason that Bjorkstrand gets dealt for the amount that he gets dealt. It's not necessarily a misevaluation. It's that a team needs to carve out the space to improve and and so you get to this point with this Canucks team who finished what 12 points out of a playoff spot and that was with a ludicrously hot finish to the season uh built on the backs of riding their best players um you know an unsustainable amount in terms of ice time and they're going into this offseason as sort of a team that has ground to make up but also is kind of in the same cap position as a lot of these teams that we talk about getting hollowed out. And so that's where I begin to get really dubious or, or at least fade Vancouver's ability to improve the way fans in this market are hopeful of this offseason. Like the Canucks aren't going to go through a process this summer that's that much different from what the Colorado Avalanche went through last summer. It's just that Colorado had ground to lose. <laughs> they they started from a much higher <laughs> like level, the cup winner, than Vancouver will. That's where, you know, I begin to get really frustrated when I see the choices that this organization has made. And, and when I think of the depth issue for the Canucks as well, the two names that jump to mind are Niels Hoaglander and Vasily Podkolzin. Right, like when I going back to pre-training camp this year and just looking at how the forward group was going to stack up, I was betting on a kind of return to form for Hoaglander and continued growth from Pod Colson, and neither of those things happened. And if the, the Canucks are going to if, – if they're going to be in a position where they have formidable depth, I, I don't see a way it happens without those guys really stepping up and taking significant steps forward as cheap young players, right, that still have room to grow. That is absolutely vital to building out this depth for next year and potentially down the road as well uh, for the Canucks. All right. Other takeaways, other Canucks-centric takeaways from round one of the playoffs. Well, one of them is about goaltending, and, you know, goaltending is voodoo, we often say, 
And there's a reason for it. Like, look up and down how these playoffs turned out, and you will find a bunch of, you know, on paper elite goaltenders, perennial Vezina nominees, and the like who lost mm-hmm. in playoff series against, you know, like Akira Schmid, like guys whose names you didn't know 10 days ago. Um, but also like their own backup. Like Laurent Brassois has been on the shelf almost all season. He was Connor Hellebuck's longtime backup mm-hmm. in Winnipeg. He's the winning goalie. Um, Akira Schmid beat Igor Shosturkin, who's, what, a year removed from the best single individual goalie season we've ever seen? Um, Linus Ulmark and um, Jeremy Swayman, this unbeatable tandem all year, outdueled in Game 7 by Sergei Bobrovsky, the guy attached to the worst contract in the league, and Alex Lyon? Like, really? And, and there's a useful reminder in this, and I talk about it sometimes, but I really felt like this uh, playoff round, this first round, cemented it, which is that the problem with re- relying on elite goalies in the playoffs is that you are looking at such a small sample of games, and as we know, over the course of one or two weeks, any goalie in the world who's at the level of being in the NHL or on the fringes of it can get hot enough to carry you, can get hot enough to go 950. And any goalie who's usually a Vesna nominee can have a bad week and be at 850. And, it, you know, the elite goalie might be somewhat more likely to put it together when it counts, but we've seen how unpredictable goaltending performance can be in this market. Like, we've seen Thatcher Demko step up against the Vegas Golden Knights in the playoffs. We've, we also saw what he looked like in October and November when he was losing starts to Spencer Martin. We saw Spencer Martin go 960 in 12 games just a year ago in in 2021-22 and then lose his job as the backup to Colin Delia this season. Um, It's kind of all over the map, and it's really hard to predict who's going to get hot when. Um, You know, with the exception of Jake Ottinger, you don't really have an elite goaltender left in this playoffs. You, You kind of have a bunch of teams some of whom have consciously yeah. decided to cobble together tandems as opposed to really leaning in on and relying on one elite netminder. The Canucks are obviously all in on Thatcher Demko. They should be. I don't think my feelings about Thatcher Demko's game are a secret. I believe in him. I think he's a tremendous young goaltender. But it's just worth noting that as much as the Canucks will, when they make the playoffs again, have an edge on paper, provided that they still employ Thatcher Demko at that time. It doesn't always work out that way. It's such an unpredictable position that one of the sort of thinnest edges you can have on paper is your edge in net. And I thought we really saw a good reinforcement of that over the course of this first round. Now, I think the saving grace for the Canucks on this one is that, okay, obviously we all know they are far too reliant on their goaltending, right? And we've heard that consistently from coaches, from GMs. That's evident. Not a secret. Not Not a a secret whatsoever. So that needs to change. The good thing, though, is they're not paying Thatcher Demko like an elite goalie. No, they're not. That's the saving grace. It's not as if you're, you're you're so reliant on your goaltending and you're paying that goalie like $9 million, right? So you feel like you have to ride them, and then it it makes it more difficult to improve the rest of your roster. Like, when I look at the Canucks with Demko, they have the upside of that elite goaltending, but they're not paying for it, at least not yet, and we'll see what happens down the road with Thatcher Demko. 
that to me, it, it makes the situation like it just clarifies what they need to do. You have to get find a way to make your team less reliant on goaltending in order to yep. kind of reap the rewards of having that team friendly contract for Thatcher Demko, right? A hundred percent. It's a, it's a below league average contract at this point. <laughs> All like that's Demko's paid like a below average starter. And we all know when healthy that he's an above average starter. And yet, you know, you look at this team's save percentage in the second year of the deal, and they were one of the worst in the league because part of what you're paying for is to have a guy be durable, right? So it's um it's a really tough one to sort through. The Canucks have one really good goaltender. They have a really promising prospect in Arturus Silovs. Mm -hmm. They have Spencer Martin, who's, you know, struggled over the course of this year but looks like he's found his confidence and his rhythm again since being sent down to the American League he's signed to a one-way contract so that's an expensive sort of uh, it's an expensive third option and a bargain bin second option but what this team is still lacking Jamie and, and I think this sort of goes to point three is you look at the goalies in this league who played over 60 games and there's only eight of them because teams are increasingly cognizant of managing goalie workloads only one of them is still standing in this playoffs and it's jake ottinger mm -hmm. everyone else is out you look at guys who played 55 games or more including shesterkin last night and they were one in five across their playoff series the rest of them missed the playoffs there's about 12 of them goalie rest i think is an increasing factor and i think when we think about how a team because at the end of the day a goalie's individual save percentage matters, but what really matters is team save percentage, right? Like what yes. really matters is how your goaltending performs and how they win. Uh, Demko had moments this season, but the team was 31st by team save percentage. That's not a good season for Canucks goalies, no matter how you slice it. And the backup market is, you know, 2 million plus these days for an anti-ranta type, for one of those reliable veteran proven backup guys who, by the way, also don't guarantee you <laughs> much of anything at nope. all um but this team's not going to be able to afford that they know that they've been frank about it they are not looking to spend money at the backup position and in a league where rest matters more and more you know and for a goalie who got injured this past season got injured at the tail end of last season when he played 64 games and has yet to really have the like marathon starting goaltender workhorse season in which he's also healthy and on his game into the playoffs. Like we've never seen that from Thatcher Demko at the end of the day. And that's okay. By the way, that's an extraordinary bar to ask any athlete to, to climb over. Um, there's a reason so few are even asked to do it, but the Canucks don't really have the money to address this gap or the ability to address this gap. And, and in a league where I'm increasingly convinced teams should be like billing their their goalie depth as one guy plays, you know, 45, like way lower than we even think one guy plays 25. And then, you know, you're going to need 12 more games from some third guy, because that's how this works these days. If we're being practical about it, right. Um, you know, that's that it's going to be extremely difficult for the Canucks, in my opinion, anyway, to cobble together the sort of depth goaltending performance and insurance that they need and, and I do feel like that gap that sort of downside in roster construction um, was really in evidence based on how the first round played out 
I want to touch on that a little bit more later in the show, some other Canucks takeaways as well. But up next, Yannick Hansen joins the program. Very, very excited for that. Canucks talk here on Sportsnet 650. Welcome back to Canucks Talk here on Sportsnet 650. Jamie Dodd, Thomas Drance, live from the Kintec studio. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Dunbar Lumber with three stores to serve you in Ladner on Bridge Street or Dunbar Lumber Express at Ladner Center or Arbutus in Vancouver online at DunbarLumber.com. Round two of the Stanley Cup playoffs begins tonight. Uh, with the uh, the Leafs and the Panthers getting going at uh, 4 o'clock and then at 6.30, the Kraken and the Stars in the Western Conference. Uh, now joining us here on Canucks Talk, former Canucks forward, a regular contributor here on Sportsnet 650, he is Yannick Hansen. Yannick, thank you very much. How are you? Yeah, it's my pleasure. I'm good, thank you. Uh, and I should mention, this Insider is brought to you by the Magnuson Auto Group, Metro Ford, Port Coquitlam, and Magnuson Ford in Abbotsford on both sides of the Fraser to serve you. So round two gets going tonight. And, you know, I'm thinking specifically here of the Florida Panthers who had that really emotional win uh, just a couple nights, big upset uh, a couple nights ago, big upset against the Bruins. And now here they are going right into round two. How difficult is it as a player to kind of get over the emotional high of a big game seven win like that and, and get ready for the next round on such a quick turnaround? Yeah, just to throw a little stopper in that one, I don't know which one was bigger emotional, Toronto's win sure. or Florida's win on that one. I think they're both equal footing in terms of, of getting past that that hum. Toronto, obviously, everybody knows the history uh-huh. and what they've been through for a bunch of years now, where Florida, they were in the second round last year, um, failed a little bit. But yeah, they upset a, a very, very good team this year. Um, I think that that it it could potentially be a very very good series that one as well. Um, uh, there are some tantalizing characters in it, uh, some good hockey players as well. So it, it's one that you're like kind of licking your chops at to get going as well. Um, and again, anytime you have the type of upset that Florida provided, it, it provides uh, another storyline. Um, us against the world, and, and it's no different. Uh, you look at the regular season Toronto had and Florida had, it's uh, polar opposite as well. Um, so, again, you, you're, you're looking to see uh, if the underdog can keep doing its bidding or, or the big dog will feast. Uh, and, you know, as you mentioned, big emotional win for the Leafs too, right? And I've seen some people kind of compare it a little bit to, of course, uh, your 2011 Canucks getting past the Blackhawks finally in the first round. That was a big Game 7 win. Do you remember kind of what the emotions were like coming off that high of finally getting past the Blackhawks and then going right into play the Predators in the second round? Yeah, it's like, where's the cup? Um, <laughs> where's the cup after this one? I mean, the the... the Rink and City exploded when when Burr scored that goal. I mean, you guys remember that as well as I do. Um, and, and yeah, it's like, what, what are we doing here? It's like, like there, there's no nerve here. There, there's just like, yeah, we go up, we play the Predators, which were a formidable team, very good defensively, uh, in their rights to be where they were. But what we've just been through, uh, this wasn't on the same scale, not even close. Um, so it was a big letdown, and I'm 
happy the way we were able to get over that series because that could have been a big pitfall for us in the sense that I wouldn't say we took it lightly in any way, um, but but like we had just overcome our, our biggest demon, and a couple nights later, you're you're right back at it against a team that that could uh, throw a wrench in the, in the wheels here, if you will. Um, so so again, us being able to to kind of get over that one, it wasn't six, it wasn't easy in any way. Um, it's been documented. Kess had a a hell of a series. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, everything there for an upset was there as well. Um, I, I believe we're down in that series 2-1 as well. Um, so, so it's not like we just cruised right through and and, and, and eliminated Nashville in, in any ways. Um, so yeah, it was uh, it was a change of, of pace, especially up top. Yannick, now I want to preface this by saying, personally, I'm a heartless ghoul, and yet watching a team from Boston... Uh, get upset like that after a story like a fairy tale regular season in the first round. I just thought to myself, like, oh yeah, you hate to see it. <laughs> Did you have a similar reaction on some level? Um, you know what? It's it's been a long time since they beat us, um, <laughs> and you kind of want to see the best go against uh, the best. That being said, the the beauty about hockey is the the regular season means absolutely nothing. Uh, LA mm. did the same thing to us. Um, uh, they didn't. They, they 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 got rid of us in in five games. Went on to, to win the cup as well, um, where we were favorites. So, but maybe not as big, if you will. But but it's it's one of those where um, yeah, you're you're watching Boston. A lot of success since. Um, uh, so so again, it's one of those. If they move on, I'm okay with it because of. Boston, Toronto, but when they lose out after a, se- a season like that, yeah, it's not like I'm, damn, that was too bad uh, <laughs> in any way. Um, is there anything you noticed in terms of trends from the first round of the playoffs that you took away and found interesting, whether it's um, goalie usage or the ways that you know uh, the deeper teams seem to have an advantage or size on the back end? Was there a trend in the first round um, that you found particularly interesting? Um, I, I don't know. The, the comebacks kind of uh, caught mm. me off guard a little bit. Uh, we, we saw a lot of two, three goals uh, comebacks, um, leads getting erased, which is not some, something you normally see in, in the playoffs. And whether that was because of uh, penalties getting called um, this, this, this year's playoff and last year as well, it seemed like the ref continued from regular season into the playoff the the whistles didn't get put away in any way um they kept calling calling plays kept calling penalties and that's kind of an easy way back into games if teams are are down a goal or two or three um because a lot of the teams that are still competing right now we just saw Edmonton LA battle it out and that's the best and the fourth best power play and we saw what that can do to a game um all you need for 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 a sliver of hope is okay. Let's get a power play, and, and we're we're getting a goal here, and then we're right back in it again. So the the, the comebacks um, was kind of what caught me off a little bit, and whether or not that was the the, um, the referee calling it tighter or, or whatever it was, but but uh, it seemed like the leads were were hard to to hold on to. 
Another interesting thing from the first round was the road teams having a lot of success and winning a lot of games. And and that's a little surprising, too, when you think about how excited the crowd is always for a home playoff game to see the road team win that many games. What do you think? Like, what was your experience playing on the road and how did it differ in the playoffs versus the regular season? Um, There's no question that that ramps up a little bit and you can use the the fans as a as a seventh person there if you want um and when thing goes well it's like you're skating downhill um and you you talk about momentum uh, and when you have it you you're trying to hold on to it in in a home building on home ice it's a lot easier to hold on to that momentum because you don't need production per se to feel like you're right there the crowd can give you that just by cheering big hits whatever it might be uh, and then you get that boost where when you're on the road you, you have to manufacture this with yourself and your teammates and all you really need is the other teams doing something and then all oh, the crowd are getting into it and now they're starting and all of a sudden you're back on your heels so in that sense, momentum is, is a little easier to hold on to and manufacture on home ice than, than it is on a, a, when you're away. That being said, there's nothing better than silencing a, a crowd either. Um, but like we saw, like home team, home team, away team, um, th- these comebacks um, again, they they play a, a different role when they did than they used to be. Uh, like it used to be, like if we're up in the third period, like it's a gimme. Uh, it didn't even have to be two goals. We were up 2-1, 3-2 in the third. Well, we're winning this game. It's going to get uh, closed out. Um, uh, league is different now uh, as well. Uh, don't get me don't get me wrong here. Like It's so much more skilled, faster. Four, four lines that can't score, that want to score on a lot of different teams, which means obviously more chances being created uh, as well. You don't see as many shutdown lines and guys dedicated to the defensive side of the puck where they don't really care if we score a goal as long as we don't get scored on kind of mentality. And again, that also means that there's fewer guys out there that were looking to score these goals. So uh, a lot of little things. You know, one of the other things that we were talking about earlier in the show was just how important depth has been. And, and, you know, I look at Seattle as a great example of the incredible depth they have at forward. You know, thinking back again to the 2011 run, your line as depth scoring and, and depth defensive minutes as well was so important for the team. Were you guys, the three of you, aware of, okay, hey, they might they're going to send up their best defensive units against Kessler and against the twins. And then it's up to us to, to take on the bottom of the roster and really win those minutes to give our team a boost. No, no, quite the opposite. Uh, we had one <laughs> role. Don't get scored on. Cause we would get the other guys, top guys. Um, and we used to always say, if the game is being decided while Hank and Danny are on the ice, I'll take our odds. So if the goals get scored while they're out there, win or lose, We'll live with that. But if the games get scored while the third and the fourth line are on the ice, with the goals get scored while they're on the ice, then I maybe I don't like my odds as much. Um, so, so again, our our role, our jobs were different back then. A lot of defensive zone draws, uh, seen a lot of top oppositions, and just like I said, don't get scored on, and uh, we we should win the game. Yannick, there were a couple of hits that were ultimately pretty controversial toward the end of the uh, first round. And I'm thinking, of course, about Eberly on Cogliano, which caused a really serious injury uh, for Cogliano, and uh, the Truba hit last night. And, and in both instances, I think you sort of had a similar 
principle result in um, you know the the Truba hit being clean entirely and and only a minor on Eberly, which is that the player hit uh, had the puck and and sort of moved uh, their their position changed almost right at the point of impact. Um, you know, w- contributing to those hits ultimately having a, a dangerous result. What, what's your take on how those hits are called and, and on the Truba hit in particular? Is that a hit that's just the cost of, of a collision sport like hockey? Or is there more that can be done to protect players from, uh, you know, stomaching that type of body um, I don't think the Truba hit I have no issue with. It's it's not nice to look at and you hate to be on the receiving end of that one as well um but but you cannot take that out of the game it's a forward he coming through the middle of the ice he's stick handling um he's not a he is aware but there's a lot of guys and then you get caught unaware um and yeah the, the head gets hit the whole body gets hit um but in my opinion, that is hockey. You cannot take that out unless you're going to change the entire game. And if you want to do that, then fine. But but then 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 we're changing the whole game. The Cagliano hit I had more issue with because that's from behind. It's into the boards. Um, uh, yeah, he's putting himself in a little bit of a vulnerable position, and all of these little things we we talk about as well. Um, but that's where the the onus is is both on the hitty and on the hitter. Um, so, so that one is a little more cringeworthy, if you will. Um, the big open ice hits, um, they're, they're part of the game, and they, they're what keeps the skilled guys a little more um, honest, if you will, that you can't just go through the dipsy doodle stick handle a million miles an hour head down uh, and, and embarrass us over and over again because you're better than us. No, no, you need to... You need to be aware that, that when you're crossing that threshold, there like somebody might come and hit you. That being said, it has to be clean. You cannot lift the elbow. You cannot lift your feet. Uh, all of these things. But once those criteria are met, then I don't have an issue with the hit. The Truba one in particular was like textbook. Like you go through everything. Elbow tucked, right? Didn't leave his feet. Guy had the puck. There was absolutely nothing there when you when you watched it, no matter how many frames you broke it down on. Um, <laughs> it, it was a pretty impressive play. Yeah, and I guess that's what brings, I know it's game seven, but that's what brings rivalries, um, compete, uh, animosity towards uh, and in between teams. If you have this vanilla hockey all the way through, um, it's not as seaworthy, if you will. Um, you, you again, you don't want to see guys get hit or, or get hurt, um, but it is a physical sport. It is violent out there, and that's what uh, that's what that's what we like about the sport. It's such a hard sport to play in, in terms of how fast and skilled you have to be, but but you also have to be fearless because you never know when somebody's going to hit you, and when they hit you, we move so fast that, that you might get hurt. So it, it takes a, a bunch of things in order to put it together out there. And like I said, that that's one of the, the qualities about this sport and why it's it's such a viewer-friendly sport. It doesn't need to be a 6-5 game in order to be entertaining, but there's, there's so many other aspects that can make it um, enjoyable. And I'm not saying I'm enjoying watching a guy being stretchered off or anything like like that, but but the fact that there are this element to the sport, um, the the unknown, um, it's what yeah is enticing to me. Well, 
And we're, we're talking to Yannick Hansen here on Canucks Talk, uh, former Canucks forward, Sportsnet 650. And, you know, there's so few players like Truba that will go for those hits and they have the ability and the timing to be able to pull them off totally clean as that one was against Timo Meyer. And, you know, I've heard people say that in the past, because there were more players who were capable of hitting like that, forwards would be a lot more aware about putting themselves in those positions, right? And you'd know, hey, Truba is out there or, you know, Nick Cronwall in, in, in his day is out there. You have to to really be aware did you see that even start to change just in the course of your career right where the physicality started to come out of the game and maybe players were less cautious than they maybe should have been in some dangerous situations um the suspension started coming fast and furious and that weeded out all of them like it i hate to say but it basically ended rafi's career um uh, those, those suspensions there um and yeah some of them were, were borderline some of them were over the line as well um but again once you, you you go from suspending a guy uh two or three four games to 20 games well that's it now we can't do that anymore that's the livelihood so those players and and there are still players in the league who can who could do this um but they just decided okay it's, it's not worth it because in case I am half a second off or my skate lifts the ice or my elbow just gets up a little bit, boom, I'm done 25 games. So it's not worth it anymore. And then we're just going to play hockey instead. So like I said, a lot of the guys left the league as well at the same time. The league changed a little, got a little bit faster, uh, not as physical. Um, the guys that were still around adapted as well. Um, so, so there's a lot of little things that went into it there. And there's no question once, a majority of this disappeared. Uh, skill flourished a lot more. You see these guys cutting through toe drag in, in front of the net that, that you wouldn't dare doing uh, 15 years ago because you knew as soon as you cut across the, the crease, somebody would come and lay lower the boom and, and you'd be hurting. Um, so, so again, they, they wanted more skill, more goal um, into the game. And the way you do that is you, you eliminate what guys fear, and that was getting laid out. Um, so in one sense, you, you change the, the league from being a little more physical to a little bit more skilled. And then the question becomes um, which game is, is more enjoyable to watch um, and what do you want? Um, and again, how do you sell it? So it's, it's a bigger question. But again, there is question, no question that at some point uh, it's hard to pinpoint that that happened and then it happened at a fast pace. Hey, Yannick, uh, Canucks head coach Rick Tockett gave a really interesting interview to uh, Shane O'Brien, actually, on his podcast. And, you know, one of the things he was talking about was this current Canucks team is is pretty quiet. There's not a lot of talking. And he even said, like, he'd like to see more chirps and more chirping from the players on the team. And, you know, we always talk so much about the leadership in the room and, like, the professionalism and the discipline. And those things are all really important. But, how important is it to have just kind of that the looser side of things, right? And and a little bit of that personality and that uh, the fun guys in the locker room too. Yeah, well, there, there's a difference between in the dressing room and on the ice. Yeah. Um, in in talk, talk in terms of talking, there's no question about that. Um, it's again, it, it's another nuance to your team, another string to play on. Um, nowadays, it's it's almost too mic'd up that you can have that. Because guys will get in trouble now. If you're saying stuff that guys were saying back then, there's no question about that um, and the things that were going on. So it, it's kind of like the the spotlight is on a little bit more brighter. So you can't hide the same where it's like, what just happened out there? Why did he lose his head like that and started going rampage? Well, something was said, done in in somewhere, and 
again, it didn't get caught back then where now there's a thousand mics and everybody's mic'd up. So you, you're hearing everything. So again, some of those players left the league as well. Um, and then it hasn't been uh, nurtured in the same way. Um, so there's uh, like again, it's, it was part of the game back then. You're you're trying to throw whoever you could off their game, um, uh, take a penalty, whatever it might be, um, and that's just the way it was. Um, but again, that 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 left as well, or have left to some extent, I think. And what about so that's talking to the other team, right? And you know, again, think back to the, the your era of the Canucks. They had some guys who could chirp out there with the best of them, and Kessler and Bieksa and Burroughs. But what about just like talking amongst each other, and and you know, having that kind of whether it's on the ice communicating or off the ice, how important is that for a team? Well, you have to have it, um, and then it gets to a point where you don't need it. Um, but but in order to be successful, you need the communication. The, the game is very fast, and it's hard to see what's open and what's not, what's covered and, and where the avenues are. And that's where you use talk just to, hey, put the puck here, leave it there, uh, dump it, change it, uh, whatever you, you can think of. Um, and then you create this chemistry. And once you start to get this chemistry, it becomes that you don't need to because now you just know. And then we start playing the game at a lot faster pace because now you don't have to think, see, or listen. Now you just know, um, and your reaction becomes that much quicker. And again, that's what separates um, the, the the great lines from the good lines, the ones that can just go out and play half a second quicker because you don't have to see, look, or hear. You just know where, where the other guys are on the ice. And again, those are, those are tend to be the success, successful ones. Yannick, really appreciate the time. Uh, enjoy the start of round two tonight, and hopefully we can chat again soon. Sounds good. Take care. That is Canucks for- former Canucks forward uh, Yannick Hansen, regular contributor here on Sportsnet 650 as well, with some uh, uh, fascinating thoughts about his experience in the playoffs in this year's edition as well. And by the way, uh, I looked up, uh, you know, we were talking about the turnaround from beating the Blackhawks in 2011 in the first round in overtime to going up against the Nashville Predators. They won game one, one nothing, uh, and limited Nashville to 20 shots in that game, which, you know, Nashville in those days was never a, a star-studded offensive lineup, but still, that was a, a plugged-in, locked-in performance from the Canucks right away going in to that series. They had the monkey off their back. Yeah. I'm curious to see if... Uh... We get something similar from the Maple Leafs, stars in particular, because those have been the guys under the most pressure, those four guys. And I'm curious to know if, you know, playing hockey without sort of the psychodrama that has been the Maple Leafs in the first round over the last (laughs) decade, um, if we see something a little freer, a little closer to what we see from them every year in the regular season. Uh, it's going to be fascinating. I do want to talk a little bit about that series and the other second round series as well. Uh, and we'll get back in. We'll wrap up uh, final thoughts on the Canucks centric takeaways from round one as well. All of that coming up uh, in the next hour of Canucks talk here on Sportsnet 650. Breaking down the biggest trends in hockey, the Hockey PDO cast with Dmitry Filipovich. Be sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.
Welcome back to Canucks Talk Sportsnet 650. Jamie Dodd and Canucks insider Thomas Trance here with you. Canucks Talk brought to you by Avenue Machinery and Douglas Lake Equipment, keeping you at the top of your game. Now found together online at DLEAMC.com. Coming to you live from the Kintech studio, Kintech Footwear and Orthotics, Canada's favorite orthotics provider, supported by over 2,500 five star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit at Kintech.com. Net 650 650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. We'll talk a little round two here in a minute, but I did want to get back into uh, some of the Canucks takeaways from the first round of the Stanley Cup playoffs. You have a piece up right now at the Athletic Drancer, and we touched on this earlier in the show, right? The you know the the workhorse goalie and how they fared poorly in the first round. Really, only Jake Ottinger of Dallas left in that 55 plus starts category. And I don't think there's any doubt that keeping Thatcher Demko fresh, not overworking him, has to be a priority for the Canucks next year. But, you know, as you were saying, it's not as if they're going to go out and buy a 1B or even a high-level backup starter. They simply don't have the cap space for that. And I think the two keys to keeping Demko healthy, it's like, look, obviously, like, Spencer Martin playing incredibly well would be huge. You know, Archer Seelovs getting some starts here or there and playing very well would be huge. But, like, the two things for me, number one is just get off to a good start. And it's vitally important for the Canucks to get off to a good start for a number of reasons. Like, we've hammered Mm -hmm. this over and over and over again. But it is so difficult to commit to the keeping your starter rested strategy once you dig yourself a hole early in the season, right? Like once you feel like your back is against the wall in the middle of November and every game becomes so heightened because you're just trying to keep pace of the playoff race, it's so hard to find those easy spots to get your back up. Like the number one thing the Canucks can do, I think, to keep that Demko rested and healthy is just get off to a good start. Give the coaching staff the freedom and the just like breathing room to play the backup an appropriate number of games. It's so hard to do that if you're underwater already, you know, going into American Thanksgiving. It's a really good point, but fundamentally, just in terms of how I look at team profiles, Vancouver's lack of goalie depth to me just creates so much downside risk, both early in the season and later on, right? Because your whole season is an injury away from being waylaid. Mm. Like when we talk about those teams that, you know, and, and I, I, I mean, everyone knows my obsession with trading for a first round pick that could convert. Yes. Or confer, right? Um, the way that the Canucks actually did acquire that pick and then traded away uh, for Bo Horvat. And my favorite target to talk about is always those teams that rely on an elite goalie and don't have great goalie depth like that. Those are the teams that can just fall off a map. I I like to think of it, of it almost like there are outcomes and then there's if comes right? like that there you're, you're hope betting on the durability of a goalie who's had a multitude of injuries over the course of his pro career. If you're Vancouver in Thatcher Demko being able to give you what 60, 65, Right. And this is and this is sort of falls in line, by the way, with the anything can happen sort of line of thought, too. Right. It's one thing to make the playoffs. It's another thing to win a round. It's another thing to have a chance to win a cup, like a meaningful chance. And as much as we saw some great upsets in the first round, we also saw five of the top six teams by point percentage advance. (laughs) Right. Like you need to be really you want to make the second round, be one of the league's 
six best teams and, and you're at 83%, um, at least this year. With the with Vancouver, if you're selling out to make the playoffs, that's one thing, right? You can play Thatcher Demko 62 and hope he holds. And if he can, you're probably going to have really good goaltending in 50 of those 62 games, right? But what's he going to have left? What's he going to have left once you get to the playoffs, right? Ultimately, I do think that the lack of goalie depth that Vancouver has, while there's ways to manage it, ways to mitigate it, right? You can take the Kachetkov approach with Archer Silovs if Spencer Martin's not back in form. If Spencer Martin's back in form, then that solves a lot of your problems. Mm-hmm. But, but either way, you're betting on, you know, Silovs, who's a goalie with, what, 60-ish games of professional experience and one really good American League season in terms of his track record. And then Martin, who, you know, when pressed into the sort of action that the Canucks needed him to to be able to hold down in the wake of Demko's injury, like, kind of fell apart, right? Like, that's a big bet. That's a really risky roll of the dice, right? If this was a team that had, you know, McDavid in his prime on it, and, and let's be real, we like to talk about Pedersen and Hughes being, what, top five in their positions or in the fringes of it, right? Mm-hmm. Like, we're at the point where we should be talking about the obligation that this organization owes to its best players to put them in a position to win. And the lack of goalie depth to me that, and there's no way to address it. The organization knows that. Um, that to me remains sort of one of these giant shining red lights of warning that make me pretty concerned about this team's ability to reach its potential. And that's and its potential is meaningful next season. And I think the only way you can address it, because you can't again, you can't address it by like directly by fix by adding goalies. You can't do that. That's just not realistic with the cap situation. But again, getting off to a good start, but also like, yeah, all that talk about team defense and structure and the penalty kill the way to fix it is to kind of goalie proof your team as much as you're able to. Right. So you don't, so you're not panicked if you have to put Spencer Martin in and you don't get in a situation where Spencer Martin's exposed to such a brutal uh, environment in front of him that it gets him off of his game. And then he completely loses his game and has to go to the AHL. Right. Like that's the other way to address this. And you're bringing up a really good point in that like from January 1st on last year. So 2021, 22, right. The, Florida Panthers had the second worst goaltending in the NHL by five on five save percentage, and they still won the president's trophy, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Um, 31st was the Toronto Maple Leafs, right? And they still finished with 110 plus points. So what you're talking about is right. You know, there is a way to continue to win if your goaltending is soft, shaky, what have you, right? You can't just blame the goalies and be like, well, that's that. Right, you you need to find a way, even when you have to run uphill to to keep your team afloat. This team didn't do it this year, right? And you could see, in terms of the body language, in terms of the frustration expressed directly at Colin Delia, uh, in terms of some of the body language on the bench, this team wasn't able to reset. Sort of in terms of their point of view, their their uh, their ability to overcome a soft goal, a bad bounce. Um, that's going to be essential in terms of this team, you know, finding a way to make it work despite, you know, 
what I would suggest is them lacking effectively the sort of high-end backup that increasingly teams need to be contenders in this league. And, and you don't have to be elite to outplay your goaltending necessarily. Like Seattle didn't get – Grubauer's been was really good against the Avs, but Seattle didn't get great goaltending this this year necessarily, right? Like no, they were well but they below had great average. finishing luck. Well, no, but they what I mean is there are other – like it's not as if you have to be a juggernaut to – survive no. lesser goaltending there are other things you can do to help your team right it's not like this it, it's not this unachievable goal that's like unrealistic for teams to aspire to you know what i mean you know it's not you can right. survive bad goaltending and it should be uh, a priority for this team to figure out a way where they're not so reliant on thatcher demko where as i said like you're not putting your 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 backup goalies in this impossible position that ends up hurting both the team and them in the process. That's the way to fix the goaltending depth more than anything. When you look at the Kraken, right, who surrendered, what, one power play goal in the first round, yep. right? Um, and Grubauer was a big part of that. But, you know, you look at how that team plays defense, right? You look at the structure and the structural discipline that they have as a team. And that's not to say they're flawless. Like, one thing that leaves Seattle a little bit vulnerable, and I encourage you to watch for this, against Dallas as that series gets started is they're so disciplined about playing a high low game right they they really attack down low in particular and work the puck down low with three forwards really committing to to peppering opposition goaltenders from what we'd call the dirty areas of the ice but in going to high low when there are turnovers and we saw McKinnon in particular uh find ways to attack against this if the puck's turned over, they often have three guys deep, and oftentimes they'll have a, a defenseman deep with one of their shooting wingers back at the point covering. That's one area that the Avalanche were able to exploit in terms of creating some scoring chances and, and even some goals in, in that first-round series. Dallas is really well-built to take advantage of it. Um, so, again, it's not to say that Seattle's structural um, play is flawless. There are still, like, you know, uh, pins you can sort of mm -hmm. brick into it. But their overall level of discipline, in addition to quality finishing luck, permitted them to overcome sub-average goaltending over the course of the season. And, and you're right. There are ways of doing it. One, one thing, though, that you do need, you really do need, is to play a far cleaner game to give your goalie a chance, yeah. especially if it's not your guy, right? Especially if it's not a guy playing at, at a Demko level where he can make a really permissive defensive team like the club was in the in the Boudreaux bump era right like even when the team was having success in 2021-22 I'd be watching from the press box watching the chances the Canucks were surrendering and just thinking holy moly like this is unbelievable um so you know there is a need to restrict the danger to some extent especially in managing this downside risk that your lesser goalies are facing on a night-to-night -night basis and you know, this sort of dovetails nicely with another point that I that I brought up in this trends article, the the five Canucks takeaways from the first round of the playoffs, which you can read now at theathletic.com. And that is, you know, as much as my stylistic preference is for puck moving defensemen, right? And, mm -hmm. and, and as much as I admired teams like Florida and Colorado last year for making it work with a bunch of slight defenseman how much did we talk about that in the playoffs last year yep. right like the the but the four guys under six foot the, just moving the puck quickly the the forsling class Uyghur class defenseman that that florida had um this was a pretty good first round for the 
troglodyte, <laughs> the troglodyte's <laughs> preferred build of a blue line, right? You think about the Boston Bruins acquired Dmitry Orlov, then they get forechecked into oblivion by a Florida Panthers team that, let's be honest, like, the Panthers can forecheck, but they're not exactly like an elite pass rush, right? This isn't mm. exactly like getting demolished by the Eagles D-line. It's a lot more like getting demolished by the Arizona Cardinals D-line, or, or maybe a little better than that. Maybe, um, yeah. I don't know, who's super average? Some 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 average NFL team, <laughs> the Atlanta Falcons yeah. D-line, right? Um, but they got Dmitry Olov. They went in on this sort of more new age style of puck moving defender and they lost right Toronto brings in McCabe and Luke Shen and they finally have the beef they need to outlast their opponent in the first round you had Dallas outclassing at five on five you know and Dallas has Essel and Dell and uh Yanni Hackenpey and um you know so Suter right like they have a pretty big defensive group and Miro Haskinen and they were able to outclassify on five this far slighter more new age Minnesota wild blue line you look at to the Seattle Kraken and the and the key that Will Borgen and Jamie Alexiak who was phenomenal in that first round by the way and Adam Larson um like how key those pieces have been to their ability to defend and Colorado the template for the undersized blue line they're out Right. Like to some ex to some real extent, you have a team that or you have a, a playoff first round that really shaped up to reemphasize the importance of two way intelligence and, and size, heft, snarl, whatever, whatever phrase you want to use, truculence uh, on the back end really seemed to matter as the playoffs went along. And, you know, we talk so much about the Canucks blue line, don't we? Like, oh, yeah, endlessly. And my big critique over the past few years, and I've been thinking about this a little bit. I've been reflecting on this a little bit since the season ended. My my big critique, like really since the club did the OEL trade and then brought in Pullman Hamonic, right? And mm -hmm. and you had Pullman Hamonic, OEL, Myers, Hughes, and then it was like, you know, Shen, um like I don't on and on. And, and my big critique was, I don't know if they can move the puck. Like, I don't think this blue line can move the puck well enough. I don't think forwards are going get, to be getting passes in stride. I don't think they're going to be able to turn, beat, um, you know, dump-ins uh, or, like, forwards who've dumped the puck in, back, uh, turn, and key the rush. Like, I think this team's going to be stuck constantly at the base of their attack because they've built a blue line that's fundamentally incompatible with the act of winning in the NHL. And... and as I think about the work that Rutherford and company have done to revamp the blue line, and, and a lot of that work didn't happen last offseason. And we, we all know that the club basically returned the same blue line group for this year. But, um, you know, you think about the Dermot trade, which was the one move that preceded this season, and then Stillman, and then Bear, and then Heronic, right? So now we've seen four trades, two of them look a lot better than two of the other ones. Um, well, one of them looks pretty good anyway. The Heronic trade uh, was massively expensive, although Heronic helps a lot. So now you're sort of looking at this group going into this offseason, and you know the Myers-OEL thing remains a problem in terms of contract inefficiency. You hope that both players can bounce back to the level that they were at last year as opposed to this most recent season. But Heronic, Bear, Hughes gives you a projected top four group where you've got some guys who I think you can trust 
to beat Dumpins, turn, mm-hmm. key the rush, find forwards in stride, right? Philip Peronik's a really good outlet passer. You, you've, you've got a level of puck-moving talent now on this blue line that really has been absent in this market for, oh boy, I don't even want to go back and, and find the date. And, and that sort of removes, in a, in a meaningful way, one of my fundamental critiques of this roster's construction, right? Which was, this team can't move the puck well enough to compete, right? Like, that's been my contention. And I don't know that it's going to be going into next season. Like, I think you're going to have enough between those three guys, one of only one of whom can play with Quinn Hughes, that when Quinn Hughes sits, you're at least going to have one other pair that should be able to move the puck half decently. Yeah. Like, do, do pretty well. And, and I, I really think it's important not to understate how big a development that is, right? Like it's been achieved at extraordinary cost, but this team does no longer has what I would consider to be like an absolute fatal flaw where I'm going to be hammering the table and being like, this is a problem that can't be overcome. Like they should be able to move the puck. What, what I'm not sure they have right still is the heft and defensive IQ, that combination to marry it with the with the newfound sort of puck moving facility on the Canucks back end and create an environment where they're going to be able to stop the cycle still where they're going to be able to defend leads the way they're going to need to where they're going to be able to create the sort of Kraken like defensive environment where you can overcome iffy goaltending soft goaltending a lengthy injury to Thatcher Demko or even a week-long injury to Thatcher Demko at the wrong time of year and that, to me, is a big challenge for this offseason, and it's a doubly big challenge because we know how hard it is to acquire players that profile in that way in the NHL offseason year after year, and we know how little this team has in terms of space to attract those players in the first place. Yeah, and, and players coming who fit that mold in terms of like two-way intelligence and uh, and size. I, I, I think this is the first-round takeaway from your piece that I'm fading the most, and in kind of both respects. Like, one, the increased importance of big defensemen, and also that the Canucks have kind of checked the box, at least to a certain extent, of being able to move the puck. Because, like, I hear what you're saying about, like, the importance of Luke Shen and, and the big guys on Seattle's defense – but I also look at it and like every team has a really, really talented puck mover who's left in the playoffs, basically. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, Jamie Alexiak and Adam Larson were hugely important, but Vince Dunn is the best defenseman on that team and the guy they rely to move the puck. Morgan Riley had a great series for Toronto. Like Miro Heiskanen was phenomenal for Dallas in mm-hmm. that series. Brandon Montour was excellent uh, for Florida. So I still think that Yes, like you want you you know you you can add a guy like Luke Shen and pair him with Morgan Riley to give yourself that heft, but the most important factor there is still that you have a guy like Morgan Riley. You know what I mean? So I'm uh, you need both though. You, you need do both. like Morgan Riley has never has not Morgan Riley did not play like this this season. No, and it, that's like, true. These are the that's best true. six games of his year. It's one hundred percent true. And 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 Shen didn't play like this with Quinn Hughes. And Quinn Hughes, by the way, is better than Morgan better Riley. better than Morgan Riley, yeah. So it's like, you know, what what that pair, that the level that that pair has hit somehow through through whatever magic alchemy and, and chemistry that they've found is astounding. I mean, I think it's one of those things, Jamie, where you need both, right? Like you can't you can't win without one or the other. Yep. And it's really just about sort of um, 
turning the dial, right? You're, you're turning the dial effectively. And, and in this playoffs anyway, it feels to me like the dial's been tilted a bit in a league where there are a lot of comebacks, where it's really hard to prevent goals. Um, it feels to me like the teams with, with the sort of defensemen that can do that have maybe punched a little bit above their weight relative to my expectations. The way I would think about it, like, and you mentioned it, right? It's not just size. It's, as you said, like, two-way intelligence and really, like, defensive acumen. Like, the guy I look at is Adam Larson, a legit elite defensive defenseman. That's the characteristic I'm more interested in than just the raw size. You know what I mean? Like, yes, there is a need overall for size and toughness, but – I, I think more than anything, I would think of it as like they need an ace penalty killer on, on the blue line, right? They need somebody who, as you said, can do the job in their own zone, can break up the cycle. But I think the other thing for me is like until we see a significant stretch in games that matter with both Hughes and Hronick in the lineup and see what it looks like, like I'm not ready to accept. And maybe this is just years of scarring built up from watching Canucks blue lines that can't move the puck. I'm not quite ready to accept that they're going to be able to move the puck well enough yet and and that's like well, i need to see them meet, right. i mean i need to see them meet that baseline before i get concerned about adding the size and adding the toughness and, and i think there's a chance that they get there but i'm just not sold on it yet i think part of the reason that i'm a little bit sold on it to be totally honest with you Jamie though isn't is like i think we've got a small sliver of proof of concept like when this club had OEL leave the lineup and had like Wolanin in, right? And then, yeah, that's fair. And then you have Juleson in, and then like you just tinker and increase the foot speed of the back end by a little bit, and you increase the number of guys who can just like make a deceptive move and then hit a player in stride. And and I know I know it's harsh to say this, but like for most of this season, Oliver Ekman Larson was unable to do that, right? Tyler Myers, that's not really his game. He can sort of rush the puck. He's good at, like, surfing. But what I'm talking about in terms of beating an oncoming four-checker to the puck and making a crisp first play, not really his game. No. But when you had Bear, Willannon, Hughes, and then, you know, Breezebois, Juleson, like, it's not like these guys were world beaters, but there was enough collective foot speed. There was enough collective foot speed and enough ability to make a deceptive first move and, and get it moving that all of a sudden the team wasn't bogged down the way they so often had been with like Pullman, Hamannick, mm -hmm. Myers, um, like, you know, Shen even in the lineup. Like it looked fundamentally different. Like a little speed went such a long way toward addressing a flaw that was so catastrophic for this team. And, and that at least has me in terms of the way that I think about this team, in terms of my sort of analytical or, or um, my analytical view of them, it's at least got me to a point where, you know, I'm not going to be, like, ticking that as, like, reason the Canucks can't succeed. Things, it's not, not to say it's not something I'm concerned about, but, like, the last few seasons coming into the year in fading this team in terms of my analysis, like, I've been like, well, they can't move the puck, and I don't think you can win in this league without that, and I've trusted that instinct and been like, I, you know, I, I'm not buying it. And this year, I don't think I'm ticking that box and just being like, well, dust off my hands. That's a fundamental flaw that they're not going to be able to overcome. I, I think there's at least a path for this team to move the puck well enough that it won't sabotage them on its own. And yeah. that look, 
that's a huge improvement, even if it's come at extraordinary high cost. Yeah. Uh, again, I uh, maybe it's just me. It, there might be a little like irrationality on my part that I'm not quite ready to get there because Philip Ronick is a huge, huge upgrade on anything they've had as kind of second best puck mover in recent years. But I do still want to see it. I, I will say, like, if the plan is Hughes. Kronick and Ethan Bear all in a top four role next year. And we'll see what happens with Ethan Bear and his next deal. Like the fourth guy, you really desperately need them to be, as I said, penalty killer, defensive, defensively solid. Like you just need that, that different element in your top four. Uh, if you can, I, I just want to note, we've got a, um, we've got a, Oh, and Nate from Comox, Texas. And by the way, Canucks need to find their younger version of Matias Ekholm. Good luck. That would be nice. Uh, but, but, but Matthias Ekholm is part of my theory that the uh, Ekholm you know, has the, been the, awesome for the Oilers. The big defenseman has owned the first round. Yeah. And then also we've got a texter unsigned texting and we're just going to let Drance get away with pronouncing hack and pay like that. I'm the guy doing it right. Is it pay? It's, it's not pa? Pay. Wow. Look at you. All right. Nailed I was it. I was just going to let it slide because I feel like if I stopped the show for every mispronunciation on either of our parts, we wouldn't get anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> so I was just going to let it slide. But there you go. Glad to know that one was right. Um, all right. We're going to take a break. Uh, I'm looking forward to this. We're going to mix things up a little bit. Chris Hebb, commissioner of the BCHL, is going to no- join us for a quick chat next. Uh, you probably saw this. The BCHL going independent, ending their affiliation with Hockey Canada. Uh, always fun to chat with Chris Hebb. And we'll get his thoughts on the decision, why now, what it means for the league, uh, all of that uh, in our conversation with Heb. That's next. It is Canucks Talk, Sportsnet 650. Yanni on a bear. Welcome back to Canucks Talk here on Sportsnet 650. Jamie Dodd, Thomas Trance, live from the Kintech studio, 650, 650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Dunbar Lumber with three stores to serve you in Ladner on Bridge Street or Dunbar Lumber Express at Ladner Center or Arbutus in Vancouver online at DunbarLumber.com. And right now, very pleased to be joined on the line by the commissioner of the BCHL uh, to talk about the uh, very interesting news uh, around his league right now. He is Chris Hebb. Chris, thank you very much for making time for us. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks, guys. Uh, it's our pleasure. We're excited to get you on because uh, obviously the announcement yesterday attracted a lot of attention. And for our listeners who are just catching up, the announcement was that uh, the BCHL will be becoming an independent league, uh, exiting, and correct me if I'm getting any of this wrong, but exiting the umbrella of Hockey Canada. And, you know, I, I was wondering if, first of all, we'll get to kind of the why and, and the what's next, but just in kind of practical terms, what does this decision mean uh, for the BCHL? Well, it means that uh, we're going to be able to be more autonomous and uh, have a little bit more control over our future. And uh, what we're trying to do is grow the league. I mean, it already exists as uh, a, a level of hockey that, uh, that that doesn't really exist in the rest of the country. And so the regulations that, uh, that are passed down by Hockey Canada don't often apply to us because we just operate in a different manner than most of junior A across the country. So it's just going to allow us to do the things that we, we want to do to grow. Why was right now the, the right time for the BCHL to make this decision? Well, we, we've had a five-year strategic plan when I joined the league, and in it, 
uh, one of the pillars was to stay in the system because there, even way before I got around there, there was uh, a lot of uh, disgruntled owners who just felt that we should leave the system. And I didn't really understand it. And so we've taken the last five years to have that conversation with Hockey Canada about, you know, how we can take the BCHL's brand of hockey and use it as a model across the country, actually, because it's highly successful and uh, college tracking hockey is doing nothing but trending up. So that was the the frustrations of, of the owners. But I wanted to make sure that we did everything we could to do it within the system. So, I mean, without going into, uh, you know, I don't, I don't want you to reveal any of the private conversations between you and your owners, but was it a difficult process to kind of get teams on board for this decision or was it fa- fairly straightforward? No, I, I think it took time. And uh, guys, this is not a knee jerk. We have taken, we have been very disciplined and methodical. We formed a futures committee of, of owners, especially some of the newer owners that are coming into the league trying to grow it. And we walked through every possibility that you could think of to demonstrate to our board that, you know, there, there is a path outside, but it's got risk and, and people might not understand it to begin with. Uh, but we've, we've done enough work to have them vote in favor of, of leaving and without the league office being biased in any fashion, what we've been doing is saying, okay, you know what it looks like now. Here's what it would look like if you leave. And they've chosen to leave. You know, you mentioned that this has been a process involving dialogue with Hockey Canada, you know, not just recently, but over a period of years. What have those conversations been like? What has the response from Hockey Canada been like, not just about this decision, but throughout that process leading up to it? Well, at the beginning, I think there was some openness, um, and, and this, again, is five years ago, uh, to having the conversation. But the conversations never led to any action. Uh, at, at one point, we left the Canadian Junior Hockey League, which is kind of the umbrella group under Hockey Canada for Junior A, because we actually wanted to present a, a new idea, a modernization of Junior A. And we couldn't get them behind it, so we we left and tried to get Hockey Canada to look at it uh, uh, directly from us. And I think that the the system is kind of built to manage blocks of leagues and never really speak to one. And that's unfortunate, but that's what we felt happened, is uh, unless you're coming with a whole bunch of leagues that that care about what you're talking about, you really don't get an audience. What do you hope results from this in terms of how it'll change what BCHL hockey looks like going forward? Well, one of the things that will happen is it will increase our player pool and allow us to uh, compete for, for players around the globe, which uh, makes makes sense when you're, when you're as successful a league as we are, uh, there's a lot of people that want to play in it, uh, but we've always been restricted. Now those restrictions don't exist. So we think our player pool will expand and the league will get a lot better. 
Um, it also is going to give us the opportunity to create our own events. Right now, we're not invited to the Centennial Cup or the national event or the World Junior A Challenge, which is kind of the World Juniors for Junior A, because we don't belong to the CJHL, which we think doesn't make any sense. I mean, we're the best league in Canada, and our players don't get to play for Canada in these events. So uh, we just think that hopefully what happens is we're able to create an environment where these players are uh, are, are getting the best development option in their country. And in, in, in some cases, those players hopefully are going to end up on our national team. Uh, but I think because our player pool is going to get so much better, you'll see more of them getting into the Hockey Canada program. And we hope that Hockey Canada doesn't see us leaving as uh, an excuse not to invite these players to uh, attend their camps. It's a sort of golden era in some ways for talent coming out of British Columbia in particular. And we all know about Connor Bedard and we all know he didn't play BCHL, but Matthew Wood, uh, BCHL alumnus, played uh, academy hockey in Vancouver and, and hails from Nanaimo, should be a first rounder, helped his stock appreciably at the U18. How can the BCHL, in your view, fit into uh, this sort of, relatively new paradigm coming out of Vancouver right now and, and British Columbia more generally where uh, some of the best young players in the world are being developed locally at the moment? Well, uh, we think our leagues uh, had a say in that. I mean, Kent Johnson, mm-hmm. Alex Newhook, you can go down the first round picks, uh, you know, for for the last decade for sure. Because right now, guys, and, and I don't think many people understand this, 25% of Division One rosters in the NCAA have gone through the BCHL. That's a quarter of the players playing Division One have come through our league. So we're creating something really special here. It's a bit of a secret because, again, it's not the <laughs> Hockey Canada development model. It's kind of paying some tribute to the quote-unquote American system. But every other sport does exactly the same. If you're a volleyball player, you end up in the NCAA. If you're a basketball player, you end up in the NCAA. All these kids are doing is choosing college as opposed to major junior. So they should be supported. There should be two paths, and they should be supported. And that's all we're saying. And we haven't felt there is a a desire to have uh, our league supported in what it's trying to accomplish. A few more minutes with uh, Commissioner of the BCHL, Chris Hebb, here on Canucks Talk, Sportsnet 650. That, that's an incredible stat that you mentioned, 25% of the NCAA Division One rosters coming through the BCHL. And as you said, you just have to go through some very high-profile recent draft picks uh, to the NHL that played BCHL uh, to see how productive that league has been in turning out players. You know, what has led to that separation between the BCHL and the other Junior A leagues across Canada, where it has really distinguished itself as, you know, a feeder league to the NCAA more than any other league? Well, I certainly can't take credit for it. It was the work of John Grisdale. You know, he, he was the commissioner for a long time, and John made this a great hockey league. And for some reason, it it got discovered by, by players as uh, – a hell of a place to go to develop yourself, to be seen by scouts every night. And I think what happened with Junior A, and, and not completely across the country, Alberta's got a good league, but there's 
Uh, junior A's turned into pay-to-play guys where, you know, uh, players come and they pay-to-play. And so the leagues aren't very good because you're not going to get good players if they have to pay-to-play. We voted to get rid of all fees that are paid for by players uh, by 2025. And I think that's what happens is the good players then come. But it's also the reputation, it's the coaching, it's the markets, it's the way they get treated. It's a professionally run league. And that has uh, driven kids to our league and attracted local players that may have chosen another route uh, to stay at home. Alex Kerfoot, who got the big goal for the Leafs the other night, spent two years in the BCHL. So it's it's kind of a secret. Uh, and and now I, I think because we're not under Hockey Canada, we are going to break through some some more barriers. And, and as you mentioned as well, the uh, there's just a lot more uh, young players who are choosing the college route. Why do you think that is? Why has that become more popular for elite young hockey players? Well, I don't know if you guys know, but I started working for the Canucks in 1994. And back then, there might have been 5 6% of the league was college players. I mean, I, I could almost name them yeah, back then. Sure. But here we are today, and 33% of the NHL is players who came through college. So we don't hear about it in Canada because, you know, most of those kids are coming through college in the States. But at the end of the day, the NHL understands that the college track is trending. And they, they support it. And a lot of NHL coaches like kids that come to them out of college because they're mature. They've been away from home. They've, they've uh, developed as men. And, uh, and I think that's why college players are more and more the, the desirable uh, roster choices. Chris, as you say, you worked for the Vancouver Canucks back in, uh, I, I believe, the Orca Bay era, right? Um, I sure did, yeah. <laughs> you, you, you getting any feedback um, from hockey people or, or all old colleagues uh, about the success of the Kraken? Are, are people um, you're talking to affiliated with the BCHL uh, getting pretty excited about another Pacific Northwest team having success in the NHL? Well, uh, a number of my old colleagues are down there at the Seattle mm-hmm. Crack, and Victor DeBonis, who I worked with at the Canucks, is down there. Todd Lewicki, who hired me into the industry, is running that organization, and what a hell of a job they've done. And it, it's a great thing, I think, for Vancouver. Like, Vancouver's going to come back, and there's going to be a great rivalry, but uh, they they are um, they are friends of ours, and in fact, our league showcase next September is going to be in their practice facility, where we bring all of our teams for two games, and we do that every year. And the scouts will come and uh, and and sit in the seats and see you know the best college tracking league uh, in Canada actually showcasing it in Washington State. So we have a team in Wenatchee, um, and and we we think that the growth of hockey in in Washington State is going to be obviously supercharged by what the Kraken are doing. Mm. Uh, But we have a league literally two hours away. Uh, Five of our teams are a two-hour bus ride. So you've got to recognize that we're the college tracking alternative, and uh, and we're right next to you. Does... Becoming an independent league have any impact on how teams might be able to recruit 
coaching talent, perhaps. Um, you know, obviously you've had some coaches come through your ranks and go on to NHL success, both in I- executive capacities. Uh, I think about former uh, Trail Smoke Eaters head coach Jeff Tambellini, who's now running player development uh, in Seattle. Um, will this change, or do you hope it changes, uh, sort of how these teams look, not just on the ice, but off of it? So when we think about the NHL as kind of top of the food chain, I mean, what they're trying to do is get the best players. They don't care where they come from. Well, it's exactly the same thing with coaches. You're just trying to get the best coaches, and you don't care where they come from. And we have good coaches in our league. We have good assistant coaches in our league. And, yes, they move on to, uh, you know, some of them have gone to the Western League. Some of them have gone directly to the NHL. So we think that our our league is just as attractive to uh, developing coaches as it is to developing players. Chris, really appreciate the time. I'm sure it's been a a very busy week and a couple days for you. So thanks for coming on and uh, walking us through it a little bit. We appreciate it. Appreciate the time, guys. That is BCHL Commissioner Chris Hebb talking about the league's decision to go independent and uh, leave the Hockey Canada umbrella organization and you know, the next step for, as uh, as Chris was saying there, like a league that has really, really dis- distinguished itself at the junior A level and just turned out an incredible amount of talent in recent years. Go back five, ten years. Uh, so many high-profile players have come through the BCHL, Drancer. Absolutely. Well, and I don't know if you paid close attention to the U18s beyond Macklin Celebrini dominating everything and Dalibor Dvorsky ensuring that he won't be in range for Vancouver in the event that they, the the very likely event that they lose the draft lottery on Monday. Um, But Matthew Wood was phenomenal. Like, Mm -hmm. Wood is jumping up draft boards right now. It, it's um just it's kind of surprising to me that he fell down draft boards when you just just purely like hockey DB scouting. You look at his production in the various levels at his age is like absolutely outrageous. Being the youngest well, player in college hockey, what motor. he did. It, he's not a super high motor guy, and and there's going to be some some work on. Have you heard this one uh, by the way about young prospects? They need to get faster and stronger. <laughs> um. So so but but it's it's that. That's why. Yeah. But I mean guys one of the five best yeah. finishers on pure talent in this draft class. The production has been through the roof everywhere. He's six foot four. And here's here's my favorite Matthew Wood story, right? Because he's from Nanaimo, mm-hmm. but he was uh West Van Warriors, so he went to the West Van Academy, um, which of course is the um, academy that Connor Bedard went to, um, but also you know Fraser Minton, who was the Toronto Maple Leaf second round pick. They're 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 churning out a lot of NHL talent these days. And during that season, he billeted with the Bedard family. So <laughs> there were there was a year of his life spent with uh, with Connor and Matthew, basically just like every day after hitting the gym and hitting practice um, and like skating with their team, they'd come back and just you know, shoot on targets that were infinitesimally small. <laughs> um, you know, and, and basically those sessions have resulted in two of the five best finishers in the in the 2023 NHL draft class. And that all happened, of course, in our backyard in Vancouver. Um, it's going to be a really exciting first round for our city, uh, even if it's, you know, only a mildly exciting first round for the Canucks. And I will say, I think it shows you the depth of this draft class that, 
six foot four, who is like ridiculously skilled, incredibly productive at every level. And we're talking about it like, can he fight his way into the top 10? Not automatic top five law, oh. as he would be in a oh, lot of years. You know what I mean? Top 10 would be a climb. Top 10 That's what would I be mean. a climb. That's what I mean, yeah. right? But, but, but like I, in, in a lot I of years, cemented... that, that profile is a, is a lock in the top 10. For sure. I, I think he cemented himself with, like, I think I think the performance at the U18s probably makes him a lock for the top 20. And I won't be stunned if he climbs into the top 10, but I think more likely we're looking at low teens. But he's one of the guys coming out of U18s, you know, aside from Dvorsky and aside from Macklin Celebrini, who I think put himself, you know, it's no longer like, and people are saying he could be the first mm. overall mm-hmm. pick in 2024. Like he's very likely now <laughs> to be the top the first overall pick in 2024 in the wake of that performance but uh woods definitely uh climbing up draft boards from the scouts that i've been talking to and prepping for the draft lottery next yeah week. We'll, we'll have to do uh we'll, we'll we'll talk to a scout once the draft lottery is settled for sure but yeah divorce yeah, was and let's not and let's not talk about it too much it makes me too upset <laughs> We'll it get should it. be Christmas. We'll get into it at some like, point. We'll get into it at some yeah. point, though. Sorry. I mean, maybe that's a feature that it makes you upset. Um, but we'll see. <laughs> uh, do we, we want to do some uh, some lightning round round two picks tonight? Uh, obviously, the first sure. one getting going. And by the I'm, way, I'm I'm worried though. I I made my picks on Twitter publicly. Yes. And I'm really worried that I messed them all up because I have the exact same picks as Sat. Oh no. So I know I didn't do. I know I got it wrong. <laughs> okay. So D- did you hear? Did you hear them talking about? By the way, that they wouldn't want either me or Bruff on a deserted island. Did you hear that? No, I saw a reference to it, and somebody texted in. We, we might just do this instead of the lightning round picks, but uh, well, we should do that too. Okay, we can do both. Somebody texted in yesterday. Um, to us, like kind of you know fair fair turnaround uh, or turnaround is fair play. Like, would you rather be on a desert island with Sat or Reach? And I will say, I think a lot of people would lean to Sat. And don't get me wrong, no, I, I, I love I love Sat, but Sat is very fastidious. And I wouldn't say yeah. that I'm a slob necessarily, but I I don't meet Sat's standards of cleanliness. And I think that that would probably create some tension, even on a desert island, pretty quickly. So I think I would go yeah. with Reach. Reach would probably have like There's a pocket some... espresso machine. It'd be great. Exactly. Reach is a survivor, man. Like I I'm I'm going I'm going Reach. All day. Sats, sats good looks and, uh, and and good attire can't help me on a desert <laughs> island. I need I need Reach's grit on, on a desert island. Uh, there um, you go. And by the way, I'm clearly the pick over Bruff. Bruff would complain and like lose all hope very quickly, whereas I'd be like, we need a plan. Like, let's figure this out. I'm much more solutions oriented. All right. No comment. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I got Leafs in. Oh, by the way, we both had the same picks. Yes. Right, so, in, yes, so we, we did. did okay. Five of we eight. did okay. Five of eight. But yeah. but if we'd gone even money bets on all the series, we would have lost money. Yes, because we didn't have enough dogs. Yeah. Um. So so I would say you know B minus B minus for you and I. I'll buddy. take that. I'm happy um, with that. Yeah. So round two, we'll see if we do better. I got Leafs in six. Okay, I'm taking. Oh, see, I'm 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 off the board already. I'm going Panthers in seven. I'm betting on the Leafs stumbling. They're going to be the happy to be there effect. I also just thought the Panthers played better than the Leafs in round one. So I'm taking well, I'm taking did. Panthers in seven. They did, but I think it's a really bad matchup stylistically for them. I just don't think that four check is going to play against Toronto the same way it did against Boston. Um, I've got Devils in seven. 
I have the Devils in five. I was completely no. uninspired by the Hurricanes. Completely uninspired by the Hurricanes. And I thought like Hughes and Heischer hit another level in game seven. I, I, I don't know. I could see that one being over quick. The problem is, is the Hurricanes answer with Ajo and Stahl. Um, they're down a lot of like heavy firepower, but the Devils get sloppy sometimes yeah. when you when you dump it in. And like what they're really built to do is to suffocate people like teams that carry the puck, puck carriers. And let's be real, the Carolina Hurricanes don't care. <laughs> they, don't, they don't carry the puck. <laughs> they're just going to forecheck you into oblivion. Like that's the team with the Eagles pass route. All right, real quick, so, one line. All, all we have time left for. Uh, I'll okay, take sorry. the, the no, it's all right. Oilers over Vegas in seven, and I'll take the Stars over the Kraken in six. Who you got? I got both same teams. I got stars in seven. I got Oilers in five. There we go. All right. Enjoy round two tonight. We're back tomorrow. You've got it on Sportsnet 650.